Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast that showcases my writing work in the horror, paranormal, supernatural, and southern gothic genres, as well as the folklore and history that inspired it. This is episode 5 of Haunted Muse, and the first episode to feature a standalone short story, intended to be listened to in one session, as opposed to the other three novel-length tales, which are presented on Haunted Muse as weekly serials. I plan on doing these short stories from time to time, about every other week, just for something different. Okay, so here we go. We Know How to Party, a short story. Woohoo! Cadence squealed, for what seemed like the thousandth time that night. It was past three in the morning, and they stood on the filthy sidewalk in bedraggled paper crowns watching roadies heave amplifiers into the backs of pickups and vans. Could you please stop that, Sophie begged, stumbling over a discarded slice of pizza on the sidewalk. Having become gelatinous in the summer heat, it stuck to the bottom of her platform shoe. Scowling, she fished in her crossbody bag for a napkin to swab it off. Why do you always have to be such a spool sporf? Cadence burbled, mispronouncing the word, but not recognizing her error. Fumbling for the enormous purple penis whistle dangling from her neck on a beaded cord, her mouth found the opening. (whistles) A piercing shriek cut through the night, through the fog of humidity, weed smoke, and stale spilled beer. Jade reached up and pulled the whistle out of her friend's mouth. Jeez, Kay, lay off, will ya? We're all gonna go deaf from that shit. You don't know how to have a good time, Cadence slurred, glancing around the group for an ally. She stumbled forward over another slice of the same mutilated pizza, but not caring. Does she Paige wagey? Cadence threw her arm around Paige, who was wearing a white tank top with the word bride in bright, sparkly, cursive script across the front, all pink. The rest of the girls had on correlating pink tanks that said Bride Squad, scrawled across their chests in silver, each with matching super short Daisy Duke cutoffs and cripplingly high silver heels. Paige pulled her face back from her friend, fanning the air in front of her. All five of them were drunk, but Cadence was the worst off. Her mascara had melted into rivers that cascaded down her face. With her smeared red lipstick and bleached blonde hair stringy around her chubby, snub-nosed face, she looked like a very sad, sweaty clown. Glancing down at her phone screen, Paige saw that it was blank. Damn. Natalie, do you have any battery left? Mine's dead. Natalie pulled her cell out of her back pocket. Nope. Sorry, P. She held up the black screen. I think y'all must have been sitting on it back there at Tootsie's when we were on the rooftop. She pressed the start button hard. Not even enough for an emergency call. Anybody got any battery left? Paige asked, exasperated. I'm ready to go. I used the last of my battery posting those selfies we took over there hours ago, said Jade, gesturing down Broadway. Sophie shook her head, no, and looked at Cadence. Feeling all of her friends staring at her, Cadence perked up. I will save us, she announced, staggering out into the street. This is my town, and I'm the queen of the world. Cadence flung her arms widely and began spinning around, waving her phone in the air. Paige lunged forward and grabbed Cadence by her belt, 
pulling her back onto the sidewalk as a massive dually truck raced by, horn blaring. Natalie reached for Cadence's phone, but she jerked her arm away. Flailing, Cadence dropped it. The phone hit the ground once, bounced off the pavement in its rubber case, and flipped back into the air. Oh my god! Jade exclaimed, grabbing for the phone, but missing as she fell over Sophie, who was also straining to catch it. They watched helplessly as Cadence's phone went between the slats of the storm drain, lost forever in the waste of a thousand revels. Shit, Paige sighed, letting go of Cadence's belt. Now what are we going to do? We could walk, Natalie suggested. All the way back up to 12 South? Jade replied, raising an eyebrow. I don't know about the rest of you, but these shoes are killing me. Me too, Sophie added. I can't go much farther. What about him? Cadence slurred, pointing to a van parked at the curb. It was painted a dingy yellow, with a basic-looking checkerboard logo on the side that said simply, Yellow Cab. The driver's side window was down, and a man's arm lay across the sill. In his hand, which was tattooed across the knuckles, he held a cigarette with a long trail of ashes. I'm not getting in some random weirdo's van, Paige said. He's not some random weirdo, Cadence argued, tottering toward the vehicle. He's a cab driver, like the old school kind, like before Uber. You mean Uber, Natalie corrected, emphasizing the word. Cadence paused wavered a bit on her feet, and then burst out laughing at her accidentally dirty joke. Staggering over toward the van, she put out her hand and took the cigarette from the driver, giving him a sly wink that left her gummy false eyelashes stuck together. Taking a drag from the smoke, she gestured back toward her friends. Natty Light wants to know if you're a luber. The driver peered out the window at a group of girls standing on the sidewalk. Surveying them critically, he leaned back in his seat. Yes, he replied, smiling crookedly at Cadence as she handed him back the cigarette. Yes, I am a luber. He pressed a button on the inside, and the passenger door of the van slid open. See? Cadence wailed. Told you so. Come on. She struggled into the van, plucking at the wedge from her thong for the whole world to see before turning around. None of the other girls stepped forward. Jade crossed her arms. Kay, you crazy. I'm not getting in there. Me either, echoed Sophie. Oh, come on, Cadence trailed off. You know, you two birds always want to follow me. And what is that supposed to mean? Jade popped back. Stepping closer, she pointed at Cadence. You always think that just because of who your daddy is that you're something special? Huh. You're so untouchable, the rules of the world don't apply to you. Cadence Kushner, little Miss Thang. If you ever set a foot outside of that little Brentwood Barbie bubble you grew up in, I think the world would teach you just how small you are in about a minute. Ooh-hoo, Cadence hooted, putting on a bad accent. Memphis thinks she knows all about what can happen up in the hood, huh? Hey, hey, Sophie called, stepping between the two of them. There's no need to escalate. Cadence, you're too drunk, and that was totally wretched. Just apologize to Jade, and we'll all go. It doesn't make sense for the rest of us to stand around out here on the sidewalk if you're set on taking the cab. Besides, it's safer if we all stay in a group, regardless. Cadence narrowed her eyes. A cloud of hatred passed across her face like a fast-moving storm. The other two saw it and braced themselves. It seemed to happen all the time now. 
that when Cadence and Jade got drunk together, the old tensions came out stronger than ever. Jade was the more talented singer, and everyone knew it. But Cadence's family had money and connections, so she could afford to pay Jade as her vocal double. Sophie was their pianist and peacemaker. A straight-A student and sacred music major from Lexington, Kentucky, Sophie was definitely the only one of the group who'd come to Belmont because it was a Christian school. She'd been the first of the group to get married, too, the week after graduation in May, to the wealthy son of a horse-racing family back in Lexington. Curiously, none of them had been invited to the private ceremony. This had been Sophie's first trip back to visit with her former roommates in Nashville, and the other girls noticed she was even more reserved than usual. Now that college was over, it seemed that their old roles and resentments were too entrenched to change with everyone back in town. Um, isn't this supposed to be my night, anyway? asked Paige, turning to address them with a hand on her chest. After all, aren't I the one getting married Sunday? So let's not argue, okay? This is the last night out all five of us will have until who knows when. Sophie's got a point. We should stay together. It's safer, right? Paige nodded toward Natalie for reinforcement. Provided that Jade doesn't pull Cadence's hair out in the van on the way back, probably so, Natalie replied. Paige rolled her eyes as if to say, not you two, not now. Their relationship was older than the other three roommates, whom they met randomly through the Belmont off-campus housing database search five years later, earlier. Natalie and Paige had been friends since they'd started upper school back at St. Ursula's in Cincinnati. Natalie's English was still somewhat shaky back then, so she didn't talk much. Neither did Paige, but for a completely different reason. She hadn't wanted anyone to know that her mother had just been committed to an asylum, and her father had switched her to a Catholic girls' school in hopes that the nuns would know what to do with a shy, only daughter. Because he certainly didn't. Both girls found their voices through the theater, and had continued on to college as drama majors. Paige, the prettier of the pair, always got the better roles, but Natalie, the better actress, was more thoughtful. Until the unexpected announcement of Paige's engagement that spring to an older lawyer whom she'd clerked for all last year, they'd planned to room together in New York after graduation. Conspirators in a mutual plot to thwart their parents' more conventional ambitions, law school for Paige and medical school for Natalie, they'd been inseparable for years. Although Paige claimed that she'd stay in touch, Natalie knew better. It was all over, and she was alone. Watching the girls step into the van one by one, the driver shook his head, thumping the butt of his cigarette out onto the sidewalk. There we go, girls. There we go. You know how to party, right? Cadence, with her mind already erased of the spat by alcohol, let out a half-hearted whoop, and Jade turned her back in disgust. Paige sighed and reached out a hand to Natalie to help her in. Natalie hesitated, staring at the dying cigarette on the pavement. She looked back at the driver's window, but he'd rolled up the glass. It was tinted, so she couldn't see him moving on the other side. His pronunciation triggered something in the deepest recesses of her mind. It was the way he'd said some of the words. Girls. With a little click between the R and the L and again with the R and the T in party. She leaned into the van, holding onto the sides of the door. You're not from here, are you? Natalie called to the driver. Jesus Christ, Jade exclaimed, throwing up her hands. Please tell me you're not going to start that shit too. Accent shaming is so classist, and 
but the rest of Jade's argument was lost as Natalie jumped back with a squeak. The driver had hit the door button and it began to close. Not waiting any longer, Paige leaned precariously out of the van and grabbed the front of Natalie's tank top. Not wanting to have her shirt ripped off, Natalie allowed herself to be pulled in as the door closed and the van pulled away from the curb. We're heading to 12 South, Sophie announced loudly toward the front of the van. The shatterproof glass window in the front seat was very small, just enough for the driver to be able to use the rearview mirror. Sophie cupped her hands to the passenger side window, trying to peer out. The tinting was too dark to see, but from the lights of the honky-tonks going by around them, she knew that they were heading in the wrong direction. "'You'll need to turn around and circle back,' she said, knocking lightly on the glass. "'Where's the meter?' Natalie asked, her eyes adjusting to the much dimmer light in the back of the van, which had no real seats. She elbowed Paige in the ribs. "'Look, how are we supposed to pay?' Paige, who had been distracted in her attempt to referee the ongoing snipes between Jade and Cadence, finally looked. There was no meter in this old-school cab. Paige's blue eyes met Natalie's brown ones. Sir, Paige called, rapping insistently on the glass as she tried to catch the driver's attention in the rear view. Sir, I, I don't see a meter back here. Is this a cash cab only? If so, I don't have any, but... Paige's plea was cut off. The driver did not make eye contact as he reached up and slid the cover shut on the window, plunging the back of the van into total darkness. The realization came as the van crossed the river into East Nashville. They were trapped. By the time Natalie came to, it was well past sunrise. The side of her head throbbed from a goose egg that seemed to pulsate with every beat of her heart. Her mouth was dry and felt stuffed with cotton. The concrete floor on which she lay was cold, and it made her nose drip. However, when she attempted to raise her hand instinctively to wipe it, she found that her hands were tied behind her back. Twisting to see her feet, her back popped, and she felt them tied behind her at the ankle. None of the other girls were awake yet, and Natalie could hear two men arguing. Through the haze of her rising consciousness, she could tell that one of them was the driver of the van. He was shorter and skinnier than she'd noticed before, and smoking yet another cigarette. The other was a large, heavy-set man with a curly halo of greasy gray hair and a thick Tennessee accent. "'What the fuck, Pablo?' the gray-haired man yelled. "'I mean, what the honest fuck were you thinking? How am I supposed to explain them?' He pointed in the direction of Natalie and her friends, who were tied in a row like so many fish caught and laid out on a dock. "'I got tired of waiting, boss,' Pablo whined, taking a deep drag off his cigarette. Demetrius was supposed to be there with the girls at midnight. When he didn't show, I drove round and round. I wait and wait. Hours. Nothing. Then I hear these girls, whooping and carrying on. And I think, what's wrong with this bunch? They're young and hot. They fetch a good price. The fat one walks right up to my van and starts flirting with me. Then the rest of them pile in after her. It's like they're begging for it. He shrugged. Girls are girls. I don't see what the difference is. Girls. The way he said the word registered again in Natalie's brain. The click between the R and the L. It was the same way her father used to say the word. Not her adopted father in Ohio. Her real father. Her father from before. The gray-haired man slapped the cigarette out of Pablo's hand, and Pablo stood watching him, mouth open. The difference, you goddamn commie, is these girls are the kind of people people go looking for. 
He reached down and picked up a handful of IDs and started flipping them one by one through the air at Pablo, as if he were dealing from the bottom of a deck of cards. Jay Jensen, college girl. Natalie Leahy, college girl too. Paige Dabrowski, what do you know? He paused for a moment in mock dramatic effect. Another college girl. Bride to be, in fact, according to her damn tank top. That one's fucking married, he pointed at Sophie. So somebody's going to be wanting them two back for sure. And then the fat one, he motioned toward Cadence. Shit, her daddy runs a goddamn record label. Kushner. Saw him on TV just last week for CMA Fest. He ran both hands through the shaggy mop of his hair. How in holy fuck are we supposed to peddle this bunch without anybody knowing? By noon, they'll be all over the news. Pablo's blank stare turned into a smirk as he reached into his back pocket of his faded black jeans and pulled out another cigarette. So we don't, he said, prodding nonchalantly into the packet before realizing it was empty. He crushed it and tossed it aside. We sell them. Outright. To who? I know a guy. Pablo's smirk twisted nonchalantly. Down in Mexico. Near Guadalajara. Good kid. Steals cars. The big boss he works for, he trying to get into the business of selling girls. All kinds. Everywhere. Nobody looks. Because nobody cares about Mexico and the United States. So long as they don't come here. He shrugged, sticking out his lower lip. Nobody goes to Mexico looking for anything but trouble. Not police, not government, nobody. We take them there and poof. Pablo made a big bursting motion with his hands. They disappear. Bye-bye girls. Bye-bye trouble. Hello money. He rubbed the fingers of his left hand together as if grasping a wad of cash. The gray-haired man pondered this for a moment. Natalie kept her eyes screwed shut, but she could feel him appraising her and the other girls as they lay tied on the floor. How long will it take to drive them down there? I don't want them waking up and kicking and screaming and carrying on in the back of the van, but I don't want to knock them out permanently, neither. That would be pointless. Pablo nodded. Checking his watch, he squinted one eye closed, calculating the time and distance in his head. It's almost five o'clock now. If we start straight down, it will take a little more than a day. Twenty-nine, thirty hours. We could toss them now and again early in the morning. That should make them wake up around... He waggled his hands back and forth. Nah, around sunset tomorrow. About the time we get to Guadalajara. Sunday night, the other man nodded, pulling the shaggy gray locks back down from his face and into a low ponytail. That'd be about perfect. Wouldn't have to feed them in that length of time, and if we don't give them any water, that prevents the need for bathroom breaks. It could work. You got any more tracks? I always come prepared. Pablo smiled and walked back to his van. With both of their backs turned, Natalie stole a glance around. The warehouse was basically empty save for Pablo, his van, and the gray-haired man. The last thing Natalie remembered clearly was going over the river the wrong way into East Nashville. From the gray-haired man's accent, they must still be close to there, though, although she couldn't be sure. Yet, how had they gotten out of the van to end up here tied in the floor was a mystery. Her memory of those facts was blank. As Natalie caught a glimpse of Pablo returning with a large hypodermic needle filled with tranquilizer, she realized it would have to remain a mystery until she awakened again. She screwed her eyes shut. As she felt the needle slide into her shoulder, Natalie wondered where she would wake up the next time. That is, if she ever did. 
The van traveled south through Arkansas and Texas, past Dallas and Austin. Somewhere south of San Antonio, Natalie regained consciousness as the van stopped. Looking around inside of it, she could see that this time she was not the only one. All four of the other girls were awake and wide-eyed over their gags. As she regained consciousness, Natalie could smell the pungent odor of hot urine permeating the air. Suddenly, both of the back doors of the van jerked open. Whoosh! Am I hauling women or pigs? Pablo asked into the air, expecting no response. Cadence started screaming what Natalie thought were probably obscenities, but which were merely unintelligible squeals with her mouth full of cloth. Pablo laughed at her, answering his own rhetorical question as he pinched Cadence's muffin top, which bulged out over her too tight shorts. Maybe both, I think. You look like it. You smell like it. And whee, whee, he chortled a pig-like sound. You sound like it, too. We'll have to hose you off, I think, before we get to the market, piggity pig. Chuckling again at his own joke, Pavlo pulled the hypodermic needle once again out of its black case and jabbed it into a vial of clear liquid. Reaching out for the rope that kept Cadence's feet tied behind her less than a yard from her hands so that it was impossible for her to stand up, Pavlo drug her toward him over the open back space of the van. Cadence wriggled and flopped like a fish. When she got to the door, Cadence launched a mighty heave, spinning around and knocking Pavlo to his knees with her bound feet. He dropped the hypodermic to the ground, and when he picked it up, Pablo was cursing. The long needle was bent and unusual. You got him, Sal! He exclaimed, kicking Cadence as hard as he could in the face. She squealed again, and as she rolled back over to face them, Natalie could see that her nose was flattened and bloody. As she began whimpering, Pablo slammed the door shut. I take you to hose down now, and if you piss yourself again, I'll give you something to cry about. Half an hour later, they pulled up inside a deserted car wash. Natalie could hear Pablo feeding the soap machine quarters and the hum of the lawn turning on. When the back doors of the van opened again, the unbearably hot, soapy water hit them full blast. Screaming from behind their gags, the girls writhed like eels until the three minutes had expired. Then they lay silent and exhausted from the panic on the wet metal floor of the van. There, Pablo said, his outrage at Cadence attempted rebellion finally cooled. Smells better, eh? Maybe you remember now. Peace on the floor and be nasty, he brandished the wand at them. Pablo, wash your mouth out with soap. Four of the girls stared at him, nodding and horrified. Only Cadence remained with her back turned as Pablo closed the doors. Without the drugs to keep them knocked out, the ride in the back of the open van was excruciating. None of them could do anything close to a comfortable position, especially since Pablo drove needlessly fast over the bumpy washboard of highway, leading them further and further into the Mexican desert. Despite their fear, exhaustion, and hunger overtook them, and eventually they slept. In her dreams, Natalie was back at the Ukrainian orphanage where she had spent almost five years of her childhood. Both Natalie and her twin brother, Grigory, had been born on Christmas Eve. Their mother had died shortly thereafter of a hemorrhage, leaving their father, a sometime mechanic and mostly car thief, to care for them. Her father, knowing that he was going to prison again around the time the twins turned five, had chosen St. Nicholas's because he thought it would be lucky. And in a way it had, at least for Natalie. The nuns were stern, but not unkind. She always had plenty to eat, and unlike her brother, enjoyed the comforting daily order of Catholic school. Until the Leahys first came to visit her, Natalie had even considered becoming a nun herself. 
A big Irish Catholic family from the Midwest, Dr. and Ms. Leahy had desperately wanted a daughter, but after four boys, it seemed impossible. Although they'd been on the waiting list for an infant girl for years, when their youngest son began upper school, they decided to settle for an older child. However, despite the mother superior's urging that they take Grigory also, the Leahys declined. Four boys were enough, they'd said. Only the girl would do. Natalia, do you hear me? The mother superior said again in her dream. Natalia! The extra syllable had been left behind like so many other things in the Ukraine. Dr. and Ms. Leahy want you to go with them, to be their girl. Aren't you grateful that the Lord has blessed you so? Not wanting to be horrid, Natalie had nodded. With a thin-lipped smile, the Leahys interpreted as bashfulness, when in actuality, it had been an attempt not to cry. When the day came to leave, Grigory was in detention, yet again, for fighting with another little boy. They let him out of his room to hug her, and when the embrace was broken, she'd picked up his hand and pressed their palms together. I'll always be watching for you, she said, as Grigory sulked. It was what their father had told them the day he'd turned them over to St. Nicholas's. A few weeks before, he'd inked the shape of a tiny eye, no bigger than a cat's, into the middle of each of their palms, left for Grigory and right for Natalia. So when they linked their thumbs together, one side by side with the other, it made a pair. It had hurt more than a little, Natalie remembered, but she'd wanted to be brave, thinking about how much more it must have hurt for all of the tattoos that snaked up her father's arms. No, you won't, Greg Gregory had said. You'll forget all about me, just like Papa. He stepped away from her, saying the meanest thing he could think of. They only wanted you because you were a girl. The mother superior had tried to make him apologize, saying that she'd be sure he wrote to her. But Gregory had only glowered and kicked over a chair. As the door closed on the dream in her mind's eye, his spiteful voice rang again in her ears. They only wanted you because you're a girl. Girl, Natalie thought, as her aching body creaked awake. The click between the R and the L. She knew now why Pavlo's accent seemed so familiar. He was Ukrainian, like her. By the time they'd arrived at the auction site, it was evening again. Sunday, Natalie guessed, the day that Paige was supposed to have gotten married, with her as the maid of honor. Natalie felt sure that their families must be going crazy by now. Although she hadn't seen her phone in days, five college-aged women disappearing from a bachelorette weekend in Nashville must be all over the news. When the van finally stopped and they'd been untied enough to stand, the first thing they'd noticed was an enormous lake in the distance. Like most American girls, they had little knowledge of Mexican geography, despite all five having taken Spanish as their foreign language in college. So, seeing the landmark gave no clues as to their location. However, Jade, a former cross-country runner in high school, recognized a sign for one of the trails that snaked through the forest. La Chupanaya, Jade said. I read an article about it once in Runner's World. It's a big mountain-running destination, near Guadalajara. She turned around toward the lake. There's supposed to be, like, a big retirement population down there, I think. One of those places where people come from all over the world, near the lake. Can't remember the name of it, though. She leaned in, motioning for the other girls to get closer. If you guys can get me free of these, she shook her hands. I bet I can outrun these clowns. Stick to the trail all the way to the lake. 
there's got to be someone down there that can help us. What are all of you guttles whispering about? Pablo called. He'd gone off in the bushes to the side of the road to take a cell phone call and returned with a menacing-looking black pistol in one hand. Sails over on the other side, he motioned. Behind the ridge. Thought so. Didn't make sense to be out here in the open. He motioned toward the forest with his gun hand. Walk. They walked for hours, their hands tied behind their backs, and then to one another for about six feet of rope separating them. The forest itself was still, save for the occasional rustle of animals in the underbrush and the twittering of birds in the canopy overhead. Casting off their heels after the first few steps left them barefoot, and by the time they'd reached the clearing on the other side of the mountain, their feet were lashed and bleeding from dozens of cuts. At one end of the clearing was a large building sheathed in tin siding. Rust had eaten up the sides of its walls, forming an ugly scar, from which insulation hung in rat-eaten ribbons, like torn flesh from a ragged wound. The building was open at either end, so that cars could be driven through. Parked outside in a dirt lot were dozens of cars, of every model imaginable. Inside the chatter of a large crowd of men, mostly Mexican, but some of other nationalities, hummed from a set of metal bleachers backed up against the one long wall. Along the opposite wall was a long platform with a podium in the center. Perched on either end of the platform was an attractive Mexican woman with long, dark hair. The usual setup was obvious. Cars would be driven through the building, and other items would be carried by women across the platform for men to bid on. Highest offer won. Pablo went inside to speak to some of the other men, leaving the girls tied to a post outside. So are we going to be auctioned off like livestock? Paige whispered to Natalie, who was tied in front of her. Looks like that's the deal, Natalie replied. God help us, Sophie breathed, shutting her eyes tightly. Whatever happens after that, I don't want to know. Can you do anything about the knots? Jade whispered back to Sophie. I'll try, Sophie replied. Glancing cautiously around, she eased forward and began working at the knots around Jade's wrists with her strong pianist's hands. Now, try lacing your fingers together to leverage your wrists apart, she said. Jade did, and the rope loosened about an inch. That was all it took. Oh my god, Jade gasped, clamping her lips together to keep from crying. Sophie, you did it, I can... But before Jade could finish, Pablo returned, followed by the two other men, a squat, fierce-looking Mexican man with a cut-up face that they called Beto, and a young, white man with a severe sunburn and a dark beard. All three of them were now carrying semi-automatic rifles. Jade curled her fingers around the loosened rope so that it couldn't fall to give her away as the men ushered them inside. For the next couple of hours, they stood by the platform, almost unnoticed as the auction crawled by. Men passed around bottles of tequila and beer, getting louder and bolder with their bids as time wore on. Sweat coursed down Natalie's back and sides, and her feet itched unbearably as the blood from the cuts on her feet congealed with the red clay dirt on the floor. Swaying dizzily from heat and dehydration, her mind wandered to what kinds of bacteria or viruses might already be creeping into her body as the germs entered her bloodstream. Intermittently, she heard Pablo and the younger fellow, with the curiously thick beard, despite the heat, conversing in Ukrainian. How in the world did they get here? she wondered. Finally, it was their turn. The remaining crowd whooped with enthusiasm as Pablo and the cut-faced Beto led them to the platform. As Paige had feared, they were described in both English and Spanish as being ladies for sale, with the implications being obvious. 
Just as the round of catcalls following the announcement died down, Cadence, who had been unusually quiet since getting kicked in the face, spoke. Her voice, muffled by her broken nose as if she had a severe head cold, was nevertheless haughty as ever. Don't, Jade sighed, hanging her head as Cadence began. But it was too late. Gentlemen, Cadence announced, making all remaining noise in the battered tin building grind to a halt as she played up a southern accent warm enough to melt butter. I can tell y'all are all men of business. Well, my father is too, and I'm sure he'd be willing to pay whatever it takes to make sure I get back home safely. I think we can agree this has all been a big miss under... Galate puta! yelled a rough voice. Cadence smiled her most patronizing smile, but before she could start again, an empty tequila bottle sailed through the air, hitting her hard in the chest with a loud whack. Cadence felt her knees, her wind gone for a moment, and the crowd roared appreciatively. Jade started toward her, but Pablo nudged her back with the tip of his rifle. Wincing, Cadence struggled to her feet. One million dollars, she cried. Any man who buys me and will get me back to Nashville unharmed, I will personally guarantee my father will give him a million dollars. One hundred pesos, called out a voice in English. Doscientos, called out another in Spanish. Chud a cattle, jeered a rough voice man again, as the crowd guffawed appreciatively. What about us, begged Cadence. Tell them they have to take all of us, too. Fuck off, Cadence said, wiggling her large chest provocatively as the men cheered. Y'all didn't do a damn thing when that bastard broke my nose. I'm trying to get out of here. However, despite Cadence's attempt at bribery, the bidding for her stalled at 250 pesos. Hoping for a higher price on a different girl, the cut-faced Beto quieted the crowd, untied Cadence, and pushed her aside to one of his guards. Then, Beto cried out for a price on Jade. Immediately, the bids went through the roof, with men beginning to argue drunkenly into the thousands of dollars. Jade refused to look at any of them. Glancing behind her, Natalie could see Jade flexing her wrists with a rope looser as the bidding grew wilder and the men more combative. Sensing what was happening, Cadence spat at Beto for taking attention away from her. Reacting instinctively, he backhanded her hard across the mouth. She went down. The crowd surged forward, but Beto and Pablo pushed them back, brandishing their rifles. Then, Beto whistled, and from the platform came about a dozen more Mexican men in black t-shirts, each with rifles of their own. Having had enough, Beto began cursing in Spanish at Pablo. Although she couldn't understand the words, not, Natalie could tell that Pablo was trying to distract Beto with a new plan. He kept pointing at the row of girls and making a motion as if unzipping a jacket front. At last, Beto nodded and threw up his hands for silence, calling his men over to explain. Then, Pablo came forward and told some kind of story, and what sounded to Natalie like a garbled mix of Spanish and English with a few Ukrainian phrases thrown in. They all began laughing. Do you have any idea what they're saying? Paige asked. Not a clue, Natalie answered, but I think we're about to find out. At Beto's command, the men took in pairs, one behind each girl and one in front. Beto whistled, and the man in the front went to his knees, grabbing a girl's ankles, while the one behind her took her wrists. All afraid to move except Cadence, they stood trembling. From a sheath on his belt, Beto took a large, very sharp bowie knife. As he advanced on Cadence, she tried to writhe and twist away, but with a snap of his fingers, Beto summoned two more men to hold her completely still. Holding the tip of the knife into the collar of her tank top, he slid his blade down the front, laying it open to reveal her bra and naked torso. 
Cadence's large breast heaved as she gasped for air, cursing loudly. The men holding her head back wrapped his meaty palms around her jaws, clamping them shut. Beto's tongue lolled out of his mouth as carefully he used the very tip of his blade to carve a word into Cadence's belly. Finishing the first letter, he motioned to the rest of his men, who went into motion as well, advancing upon the other girls in unison. Unchecked by Beto's guards, the crowd pushed forward, all eyes intent on what was happening. When Beto finished, he stood up, flinging his arms wide to gather their appreciation. Party! he exclaimed, stalking from one end of the platform to the other, pointing out one word sliced into each girl's flesh, thin red lines trickling tiny drops of blood. We know how to party. The crowd exploded, although Beto roared at them to back off, hoping that his stunt had merely whetted their appetite for higher bidding. They rushed onto the platform. As Beto's guards and the drunken bidders fought hand-to-hand, Cadence wrestled free, only to be immediately snatched by the rough-voiced man who had heckled her. Without any hesitation, he slit her throat, dropped her, and kept going. Her hands worked free. Jade took off like a shot out the exit door. Seeing her escape, Sophie turned to her friends. Jade's made it. She's gone. As she spoke, Sophie was jerked off her feet. Natalie heard a loud pop as she and Paige fell down, still tied to her. Sophie screamed in agony as two men yanked her right arm, pulling her off the platform made the other two struggling behind like fish on a line. The broken end of Sophie's collarbone jutted out through her skin. Several shots rang out deafeningly close behind Natalie as the tension on the rope dragging her behind Sophie went slack. Get up! A voice behind her demanded, pulling her to her feet by her bound hands. She turned and saw that it was a young, bearded man, the one whom she'd overheard talking to Pablo on the way in, the one with the Ukrainian accent. As he wrangled with a rope tied around her wrist, she could see the sleeves of his tattoos that wound up his thin arms like snakes under several layers of peeling sunburn. As he worked at the knot, she followed the wiry muscles in his forearms down to his hands. That's when she saw it. Inside his left palm. The eye. She twisted her hand around so that he could not help but see hers. He froze. Not making eye contact, he dropped Natalie's hands as if they were on fire. Just go, he yelled, pushing her in the back and pulling Paige along t- behind to force her into motion, too. This later. Go now. Outside, the young bearded man pushed them toward a lime green Dodge Charger. They dump- tumbled into the back seat on top of one another as he slammed the door and spun out of the dirt lot. Fishtailing onto the highway, they snaked along the winding roads of the forest. Behind them, volleys of gunshots shattered the starless sky. When they'd made it into an abandoned gas station many miles away, the man pulled the car over to stop beneath the crumbling awning. He turned around in his seat. As Paige and Sophie shrank back, he sighed with resignation. Natalia, tell them I'm not going to hurt them, he said in Ukrainian. Tell them your brother is a thief, but not a murderer, and he's almost as scared as they are. After untying the three of them and cutting up an extra shirt from the trunk of the charger to make a sling for Sophie's dislocated shoulder, Grigory popped open the side door of the old gas station with a crowbar. He reparked the charger out of sight behind the station and returned with a backpack. Producing three pairs of socks, he handed them around to the girls. Paige and Natalie put Sophie's on for her, since Sophie was still trembling from the shock of her fracture. Neither of them could look at it. 
as I sat in their cut-up tank tops on what had been the checkout counter, the lines on their abdomens beginning to scab over. From Paige to Natalie to Sophie, it made a gruesome billboard. We know how. Sorry I have no more shoes, he said in halting English, trying to avoid looking at them in their bras as he fished around in his backpack for more t-shirts. He pulled out three identical black ones, each one folded into a tiny square. Maybe these help some. Then Paige and Natalie pulled off their ruined bachelorette shirts and put on the black tees, which came down to the hems of their shorts, almost like tent dresses. Sophie merely clutched hers in the hand of her intact arm like a security blanket. None of them spoke. Your accent is terrible, Grigory said to his sister in Ukrainian, once they were redressed. Yours is worse, she answered. How did you get here? Why didn't you ever write back? It's a long story, Grigory replied. He was more comfortable speaking in Ukrainian than English, Natalie could tell. What surprised her was that she could still understand almost everything he said. She hadn't had a full conversation in her native language since she was at least ten. After you were adopted, I stayed on at St. Nick's, kept getting into trouble. Remember how awful I was at reading and writing? How the other boys made fun of me? And I kept getting in fights all the time? Natalie nodded. Well, turns out I was dyslexic. That's why I never wrote back. I was ashamed at what you think. You were always so smart. I couldn't stand you knowing that I wasn't, and that you'd been chosen. But that wasn't until later on. They didn't figure it out until the first time I was in juvenile detention, fighting as usual. By then, Dad was dead, in prison, don't know how, and you were gone, so it was too late for me to learn anything, really new, anything to care about. But with what I'd learned already from Dad, and what I'd picked up in vocational training, I'd become a pretty good mechanic. Survived detention and aged out of St. Nick's, then had nowhere to go. Got a job with this shady character, who said he used to know Dad. He let me live over the garage for cheap rent, but I should have known better. We did a pretty good business, but it was because he offered cheaper prices on repairs from stolen parts. Police raided the place, and since I was the only one there, I was the one arrested. That's terrible. I'm so sorry. Don't feel too sorry for me, Gregory said, shrugging it off. It's all my fault. In a way, I knew that the parts were stolen, but I liked the old guy, and I needed a job. Anyway, before I took my plea deal, this lawyer, whom I've never seen before, he come to visit me in jail. Said he could make everything go away if I'd consider taking a job in Mexico. He didn't say what kind of job it was, but I got the implication it was at least one or two steps deeper into the shade than what I'd been doing. Turns out I was right. I got out of jail. All charges dropped in the Ukraine. And in exchange, I got a one-way ticket to Guadalajara, where I now spent my days as the resonant mechanic for these jerks. Mexicans steal cars from tourists, some of them get wrecked in the process, and I repair them, if they can be repaired. The wrecked ones get chopped for parts and sent all over. Others, the mafia moves into other parts of South America, where people care less about having a vehicle with a legitimate serial number. Pays two, three times as much as I'd make as an average mechanic anywhere else. So I'll be able to retire before I'm 30. Gregory shook his head. At least, that's been the plan. But Beto, 
he's been getting greedy lately. He's not satisfied anymore with just shopping cars. He thinks the real money is in girls, selling them to the cartel to all the tourists who keep coming down here from the States. He keeps trying to push me and anyone he knows for connections to get into that universe. Pavlo was a Ukrainian guy I met a long time ago, before I even moved to Mexico. He was in the car theft racket too, but then he got into being a transport driver for this bunch that kidnaps girls somehow. Said they preferred a white driver because it looked less suspicious around the clubs. When Beto kept pushing me for names, Pablo and his situation came up. He's made a few runs so far, but this is the only one that had girls like all of you. He motioned to include Paige and Sophie, who were both listening intently, even though they couldn't understand a word. They know that girls whom people will look for will bring trouble. That's why Beto was trying to get you sold off in such a hurry at the auction. Faster you're separated and gone, the better. The cadence, Natalie started. The loud girl, Gregory finished. Yeah, they really don't like that, all of them. Any girl I've seen them move who so much as opens her mouth usually gets shot. Submissiveness is survival around here. Whether you're a girl, they buy, or just an employee, like myself. Natalie wasn't surprised that her brother expressed no sympathy for Cadence's death. There was no telling how many people he'd already seen murdered working for these people. No wonder you're scared. Have you ever thought about getting out of it? Tons have done it, Gregory said. Problem is, anyone who quits gets killed. That's what they don't tell you until it's too late. And if I tried to leave Mexico now, where would I go? Back to Ukraine? It'd just be more of the same. Everyone knows me. Crime makes the world small. You could come with me, Natalie offered. To New York, when I move. I'm sure they could use one more mechanic up there. I've just finished college and I'm going to be an actress. A strange sort of smile flitted across Gregory's face. An actress? That's perfect. Becoming someone else has always come easily for you. But me? Heh. He scoffed, and Natalie could feel a twinge of envy in his deflection. How would I explain myself to immigration? He affected an officious pose, tugging at the collar of his shirt, as he mimicked the flow of conversation between a government worker and a tough guy. Ah, uh, Mr. Risco, tell me how you've made your living for the past five years since you left St. Nick's. Well, let's see. First I repaired cars with parts that I knew were stolen in Ukraine. Then, for a change of pace, I upgraded to stealing entire cars in Mexico. But now, what I want to be is 100% American. My sister is American, you see, and she plans on living the American dream as an actress in New York. So that's what I want now. To be a good, tax-paying, clean-living, God-fearing American. Was that supposed to be Brando at the end? Did it sound like him? I watch a lot of old movies. Not especially, Natalie answered. But it wasn't terrible either. You could do it too, you know. What I'm doing. Nobody really cares what show people have done. We're all kind of a little shady. I'll consider it. Gregory said, turning his head to the side as if he heard a door opening. But for now, none of you are going to like what I am about to say. I have to take you back. What? Natalie sputtered. Why can't we just leave now? You have a car. A fast one. Mm-hmm. 
Gregory nodded. Unfortunately, nothing outruns a GPS tracker, and that car has one inside it that can't be turned off. Bospeto wanted to be able to know everywhere I went, so he gave me a car with the stipulation I could not remove the tracker. I'm sure right now he is aware of precisely where we're sitting. I can explain away easily our stop. Just look at her arm, he pointed to Sophie. But if we don't get back to base soon, he'll have both ends of this road blocked within a couple of hours. We might get lucky and disappear for a while, but he knows people who know other people at all the border crossings back into the United States. If I try to make a crossing, he'll know. You three alone, however, might just be able to make an escape. I've got an overnight guard duty tomorrow night. I can hotwire a chop car once everyone's asleep and drive us down to where the hills overlook Ajijik, the other side of the mountain from where we were tonight. It would be an easy justification to say I thought I'd drop something back there in a rush. A laptop, a cell phone, something important and traceable that they wouldn't want left out for the police to find. Then, when I get back, whoops, I find that you've escaped. I get thrashed a little bit for stepping off my post, but in the meantime, you three will be singing like birds in front of the lakefront police, who like nothing more than an excuse to go raid the outlaws on the other side of the mountain. They keep scaring off all their millionaire American expate retirees. Beto wouldn't want to bring the heat down on himself after your story gets to the press, and it will hopefully scare him off from wanting to traffic any more girls for a long time which also selfishly makes it easier for me to live my screwed-up life with its patchwork morality. And what if it doesn't work and you get caught? Natalie asked. I try not to think about what ifs, Gregory said, helping her down off the counter, the eyes in their palms touching. For people like me, it can only lead to madness. When Gregory took the girls back to Beto's camp, it was clear that his boss hadn't thought through what to do with them. After much bickering, it was decided to lock them up in the tool shed, which was a definite improvement over the back of the van. Judging from the smell and shed fur, someone's dog had slept in there previously, on a blanket beneath one of the workbenches. Paige and Natalie insisted that Sophie take it, since despite the distinct odor of wet dog, it was the only soft spot to lie down. Her shoulder had swollen to twice its normal size and was hot to the touch. Her eyes clouded with pain and fever. Sophie quickly passed out. Do you think Jade really got away? Paige asked. That she'll send people back for us? Hard to say, Natalie replied. She pulled up the edge of her borrowed t-shirt and stared down at her stomach. The letters were twisted and uneven. No. Although the cuts weren't deep enough to have damaged her organs, Natalie felt certain they would scar. Paige seemed to read her mind. When we get home, first thing we should do is go to a plastic surgeon. People get tattoos removed all the time. I don't want to go through the rest of my life like this, she said, pointing at her stomach. Right now, scars are the least of our problems, Natalie countered, although it was false bravado. Mostly, she didn't want to think about scars at all, because doing so implied the future. What do you think is going to happen to her? She asked instead, glancing toward Sophie. However, Paige's reply was lost as the door of the tool shed screeched open. Beto pulled the string on the light, and beside him was another man, taller and also Mexican, in a crisply starched white suit and straw hat with a fresh gardenia tucked into the band. Natalie could tell that he once could have been considered handsome, but that his face had hardened over time. 
The man in the white suit mumbled something to Beto in Spanish and pointed at Paige. Beto gestured for Paige to stand up, which she did with some difficulty, both from the fact that her hands were still tied behind her back and her legs were shaking uncontrollably. To their surprise, Beto untied her hands and, taking Paige by the upper arm, led her gently out of the shed. She glanced back over her shoulder, face blanched with panic, yet too terrified to resist. After what Gregory had told them, she and Natalie both knew that her life depended on compliance, whatever that might mean. Beto turned out the light and pushed the creaking door shut, leaving only Natalie and Sophie alone in the blackness. As her eyes readjusted to the dim light, she saw Sophie sit up. What's happening now? she asked groggily. They just took Paige away, Natalie replied quietly. Beto and some other man. Sophie nodded. I wonder when that was coming, she said, her words thick and slurred. If they come back, have them take me next. Soph, no, you can't say that. It's, it's better to go fast than die here slowly like this. Sophie swatted at her right arm, pushing the remnants of her tank top aside. Natalie could see the tip of her broken collarbone still jutting through the skin. The ball of her humerus bone made an angry purple knot beside where it should have been. Besides, you have something to go back to. I don't. Natalie crawled over closer beside her friend. Sophie, you don't mean that. We've got to do everything we can to get out of here alive. Together. What about Mark? <sighs> Mark, Sophie spat. Even if none of this had happened, I couldn't go back there, because I... I... She stammered for a moment, then finally got it out. Because I killed him. Sophie rubbed her good arm. Soph, that's the fever. You're not talking sense. Mark's alive. No, Sophie was insistent, her red-rimmed eyes hot with rage as tears streamed down her face. Not Mark. Him. It. The baby. I killed him. I pushed Mark to get married because I needed... I needed the money. Mom and Daddy always said they wouldn't pay a dime on a music degree, even though they had it. So when my loan started coming due and I didn't have a job, I had to do something. Went off my pills and got pregnant on purpose so Mark would have to marry me. That's why I didn't invite anyone to the wedding. I couldn't stand all those eyes on me, looking at my stomach, judging me. I thought it would be okay. I'd have the baby and then go on with my life, but he's so wicked. I tried to ignore it, but after I was with him all the time, I couldn't. So I, I took some stuff to make it, make it go. Like I'd miscarried, but he knew. I don't know how, but Mark knew. Like the devil knows what evil is in your heart even before you can speak its name. God, he was so angry. He beat. She stopped herself. I just can't go back. I can't. He'll ruin me. To the church, my family, everyone will know how I've really been. When? Natalie gasped, shocked at her confession. When did all this happen? Just a few weeks ago. That's why I've been avoiding y'all. I didn't know how to explain. After all, I've, I've always been the good one, right? If it were Cadence... Sophie trailed off, sobbing. As Natalie sat with her arms wrapped around her, the door of the tool shed groaned open again. It was just Pablo this time, alone.
Beto told me something wrong with the other one, he said, his English more broken than usual. He seemed drunk, waving the barrel of his pistol back and forth. Which of you? Me, Sophie said, before Natalie could answer. It's me. I broke my arm, though. <laughs> Pablo replied simply. Let me see it. Move. He waved Natalie away with his gun and stared at Sophie's arm in a sling. He shook his head side to side. That's no good. Without another word, he put the pistol to Sophie's temple and pulled the trigger once. She slumped to the side. Pablo stumbled out, not even bothering to shut the door behind him. Natalie didn't know how much time had passed between when Pablo shot Sophie and when Gregory came back for her. She sat watching the moon rise over the trees through the open door of the tool shed, unable to move. She thought about a lot of things, though, mostly of all the people she'd known, and those she would never know now. About her family, the Leahys, of course, but also her real father. Gregory had said he had died in prison, but she wondered how. Had it been much different than this, in prison? After going halfway around the world, what had really changed, anyway? To end up in the same place as Gregory. When they found her body, if they found it, she corrected herself, would the obituary read Natalia Lisko or Natalie Leahy? And who would come to the funeral? Her parents, of course, but the rest of them, her girls. No. She knew that was ridiculous. As always, she would be alone. I'm sorry, Gregory said, making her jump as he stepped through the open door. They sent Paige back, and I've already put her in the car. She's not... Christ, he exclaimed covering his mouth to keep from vomiting. He pointed at the pulpy mass left of Sophie's head. How? Pablo, Natalie said, refusing to look. He saw she was broken, so he shot her, like a horse. We've got to hurry, Gregory said, turning his attention to Natalie's hands, which were still tied behind her back. Undoing the knots, he pulled her to her feet and started out the door, half dragging her behind him. The car was a dingy Cadillac, once silver, but weathered to an indecisive gray. The ripped burgundy upholstery reminded Natalie of the inside of her mouth when she'd had strep throat. Inside, Paige sat wadded up in the far corner of the back seat on the driver's side. Both of her eyes were swollen almost shut, and her entire body was covered in bruises. Natalie noticed her shorts were gone, and that she sat bare-bottomed on the ruined velvet. As Natalie got into the car beside her, Paige did not acknowledge her presence. She merely drew her legs closer to her body, curling into a tighter ball. Settling into the driver's seat, Gregory glanced at Paige and grimaced. Avoiding Natalie's gaze, he stared out the window, shifting the car into gear. We'll get her to the doctor as soon as we get to Ajijic, he declared firmly, not knowing what else to say. I thought you weren't going all the way into town with us, Natalie said as the car picked up speed on the mountain road. I changed my mind, Gregory replied. Their eyes met at last in the rearview mirror. Snaking left and right over the highway that struggled up the mountainside, Gregory's lips pressed into a thin line as he noticed headlights behind them. Shit, he said. I thought we'd have more time. Pressing harder on the accelerator, Natalie watched the speedometer rise to 60, then 70. Around the curve of the next turn, she saw a second set of headlights in the distance ahead of them. Hold on, Gregory said as he took the turn at over 80 miles an hour. 
The last thing Natalie saw before the car went airborne was another car, across the line now and heading straight for them. Gregory swerved to the right, turning the driver's side into the collision. As the other car hit them, the passenger side doors popped open. There was no guardrail, so as the car flipped over the shoulder of the road into the ravine, Natalie was thrown out. The two cars sailed overhead as she rolled over and over through the scrub grass and shale rock, finally crashing hard into a stand of creosote bushes. Grabbing handfuls of yellow flowers, she shrank against the woody stems as the cars beneath her burst into flames. Coming to her senses as she heard the car that had been following them screech to a halt, Natalie scurried under the rocky outcropping to which the creosote bushes clung. The men who got out did not linger long. Murmuring amongst themselves as they watched the fire burn, they got back into their car and drove slowly away. Natalie remained under the rocks, coiled and watchful by the rattlesnake until sunrise. She'd had enough of the night. The next morning, she trekked cautiously along the snaky road until she reached the trailhead. Before, she could see a vast stretch of lake, though she still could not call its name. Her feet throbbed, and looking back over the ground she'd walked, Natalie could see that she was leaving a path of bloody footprints behind. Deciding she'd gone about as far as she could, she sat down. When the group of hikers found her around lunchtime, Natalie had fallen asleep. The hikers, a group of Canadian retirees, had summoned the police, who were followed by some kind of forest ranger and a pair of EMTs and a Jeep Renegade. Assessing her wounds from the crash as and to her feet as very serious but not life-threatening, Natalie was driven from there to the hospital in Guadalajara in an ambulance, rather than by a helicopter. There she was met unexpectedly by a swarm of reporters, shouting in both English and Spanish as the Mexican police had to push back so that the EMTs could wheel her into the emergency room. Two hours later, bandaged and hooked up to IV fluids, Natalie was allowed to call her parents, or rather, to call her parents' housekeeper, Maria who told Natalie that Dr. and Ms. Leahy were already on a plane to Guadalajara to reclaim her. Other than the cuts on her stomach, which the doctors had confirmed through a translator would, indeed, leave clear scars, Natalie was told she would make a full recovery. When she'd asked one of the nurses about Jade, they'd sent a grief counselor in. Jade had been found the day before by a different group of hikers, with three shots in her back. The grief counselor assured her that Jade's death had been swift, but when Natalie asked if they'd found any remains of the other girls, the counselor replied that she couldn't say any more due to the ongoing investigation. Instead, the counselor had sent in a nun, a young novitiate, who prayed with Natalie for a while until she fell asleep. No one seemed to know anything at all about Gregory, even the Leahys, who arrived with the sun the next morning. It was as if he had never existed. This is the end of the short story, We Know How to Party, and the last episode of the first week of Haunted Muse. Be sure to tune in next week for more episodes of the three serial novels on the podcast, Looking Glass Theory, The Wolf You Feed, and Skeleton's Blood, along with the next installment of Why I'm Haunted, in which I discuss the story behind the story of my writing. Until next time, this is Vivian Catfield, reminding you to remain ever watchful, because you never can tell someone or something somewhere out there just might be watching you.